All right, so welcome back to The Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have a very special guest, John Waters, who is a writer from Ireland. You can find his work on Substack, John Waters Unchained. He's written several books, and he's also a good friend. You know, we've discussed a lot of things. Uh, we've discussed music. We've dis discussed politics. So excited to have you on, John. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Stephen. Good to be with you. So, um, so I was, I was just saying to you now, um, I remember almost 10 years ago now, I saw a, a recording of a speech you gave about popular music, rock and roll, and spirituality. And I remember you started this talk referencing something that Pope Benedict said about popular music and how a lot of it has this kind of diabolical energy and, you know, better to listen to folk music or classical music. And you, you kind of... Um, you took what he said seriously, but also took it with a grain of salt and said, okay, sure. A lot of the popular music glorifies things that are, we could say, unholy, not very good. But there's an impulse driving all music. Um, there's this thirst for the infinite. There's this desire for some, some mysterious answer to fulfill the human condition. And when you listen to popular music in that light, you, you understand it differently. So I, I'm interested to know, um, I don't know, like, how did you come to understand these things about popular music? What was, how has your relationship with popular music developed over time? Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, when I was young, uh, uh, when I was a teenager, you know, it seemed that, you know, pop music was kind of a, a, a rebellion against everything, including, you know, received fates and so on. Um, I, I, I remember actually... Uh, to, uh, thinking this at the time because we I grew up in Ireland and 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 it was a very kind of old-fashioned Catholicism that we we had back in my childhood which is in the 60s let's say and uh the the, the sense that the sense was at that time and it's very interesting because it's now coming back and in a way that I want to talk about was that you know this music was you know not something holy that not it was a profane music and that therefore, you know, you, you had to choose, as I've often said, you had to choose between Jesus and Elvis, you know, and I, I kind of confronted by this choice, I've often said, and I wrote it in my book, Lapsed Agnostic, that I thought about this and then I, I chose Elvis mm. because Elvis made me feel free. And, and the version of Jesus that I was being given and that, that seemed to think I had to make this choice seemed to imply that, you know, he wasn't, he was a very forbidding kind of character. And even though that wasn't my experience of him, I kind of felt... This is in a childish way, maybe that, well, he, he's not going to like this stuff, you know, he's not going to like this. He's not going to like to be around me when I'm listening to this music. And, and you know, so I'll politely make my excuses and, you know, slip away. And 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 that's kind of what I did in my late teens, you know, and, or my mid teens. And and uh, it took me a long time, you know, to, to make that journey, to realize that actually, you know, and I, I had many kind of moments of insight along the way, but I think it was, you know, Re, you know, reading the work of the Italian priest, Father Luigi Gisani, uh, you know, the religious sense, which kind of alerted me to, you know, the kind of connection with that religion and freedom are very much connected. And, and that, you know, in a certain sense, uh, kind of what I picked up from one of the things I picked up from was that if something makes you feel, feel free, then you should actually investigate that and, and maybe think about it as something worth pursuing and that the freedom aspect of something in that sense is, is, is something vital. And not to be dismissed. And you know, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I mean, I did, I did, I was inspired to some extent by Pope Benedict. And you know, what I almost wanted to do was to, a, you know, have an argument in public with Pope Benedict, if that was not a, a kind of an, a presumptuous thing to do. Presumptuous thing to do. I think it probably was actually a very presumptuous thing to do because, in fact, I, I when we did, I did that, we did an exhibition in Remini in 2012, I think it was, 
and and about you know rock and roll as a search for as a quest for the infinite something like that and uh, observatory romano uh, asked me to write an article about it and and that was a great honor and i did you know but i i talked about the the, the provocation that i had received from pope benedict's uh, lecture on music uh, from way back i think it was in the 70s and and that i wanted in a sense to have this discussion with him and uh, they took that part out you know because <laughs> i think you're not permitted to to have arguments with popes it seems i don't know but uh, i i still you know I, I meant this in the in a way that was kind of i think because i agreed with him in in lots of ways about the, so much of the music but what i felt was that he was is I could understand why he felt this because you know I often feel like this myself. You know, if you're going around in public and you're going in and out of shops or you know cafes and you hear this den coming from the public address, a very bad public address system, and you're not connecting, it's just a noise. I can understand why people might think this is this is terrible stuff. But gradually, I, I became aware. I mean, that you know, when I started to think about and meditate about what Desani was saying to us, that you know, that in a certain sense, everything is religious. And, and the responses of the human are themselves religious. I mean, sometimes they can go off the rails, obviously, but the, the impulse is, is, is a good one. It's always it, it, a yearning for, it, it's some kind of proxy for the ultimate desire, let us say, that, that, that maybe it's the wrong one, or maybe it's not the wrong one, you know? And, 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 and I think, you know, I, I, I think that that's true of rock and roll, that it's both the wrong one, it is the devil's music, but it's also the music of God in a certain sense. Uh, and and you know you have to learn there's a skill in actually telling the difference or feeling the difference and and i wanted to get this across this is what i wanted to get across in the exhibition that, that there were artists who this was clear in and and not necessarily they weren't always necessarily the obvious ones and they weren't necessarily doing music that was self-evidently you know sacred or you know liturgical in any sense uh, but it could be like the purest blues or it could be you know like you know i i, I there are lots of music we can touch on that again but you know, I find it interesting now, you know, there's a very interesting thing happening and it's a somewhat troubling thing now because there's a new kind of commentary emerging in the last few years I've noticed, particularly online. Some people would call it, you know, conspiracy theory. Uh, I don't I don't want to go into it now, but I mean, I have a thing about that whole concept of conspiracy theory that sort of, to put it very briefly, takes all the conspiracy, all the sinister elements of the word conspiracy and dumps it on the word theory and attacks the theory as some kind of sinister figure when in fact they should really be looking at the potential conspirator. Anyway, you know, uh, but the, you know, I hear people now in, in the, the last few years who have sort of, you know, in this period we're going through of trauma in which started with the, the COVID business and has continued now in different forms for the last three years. And it's very ominously kind of bubbling away all the time in the context of you know, geopolitics and the World Economic Forum and the money system and threats of central bank digital currencies and social credit schemes and the universal basic income and, you know, wall-to-wall -wall surveillance and 15-minute cities, all this sort of stuff, all this sinister sense of like a coup having taken place and we waiting for the announcement of what our future will be like, that, that sense. Part of that, you know, you find that people who are resisting it, as I have been, some of them who have kind of, as it were, found religion in that period because they see this as a spiritual war, which it is for certain. And one of the things that I've noticed, one of the themes that pops up out of this quite a lot is the idea about uh, music, rock and roll, being, you know, a kind of a satanic music, which is complete nonsense in my estimation, you know, in general. It's, an, it's a complete nonsense. Uh, uh, and it's very very misleading and wrong to, to get. It's just over-enthusiasm for the religious, uh, you know, piety as the pious aspects of religion and because uh, i i feel that 
On the contrary, uh, what actually rock and roll has functioned as in our culture in the last, say, 50 years, in a time of increasing secularization and increasingly kind of atheization of our societies, where these impulses in man for yearning for the infinite and for the uh, the absolute and the eternal uh, have been suppressed and repressed in, in the human heart. Uh, that rock and roll in some forms has, has created a kind of a Trojan horse by which these impulses can be communicated, you know, heart speaking to heart in, in that sense, right across, you know, the channels of our culture, you know, through all kinds of loops and, and capacitors and, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, wires and, and so on. And, and, and to the point where, you know, a, a musician sitting in a hotel room, picking up his guitar, writing a song, going next day into a recording studio and, and sending that song out into the world where, you know, it's picked up weeks later by a kid, 15, 16 year old in his bedroom who hears this in his headphones, he alone. And this impulse is conveyed. And it, it, it affirms something in the person that is real and that is unaffirmed in this culture otherwise. And I, I think that's something that has been grotesquely underestimated. Uh, and there are so many artists. I mean, you know, and, you know, there was a very interesting episode that happened back, I think it was in, just after the death of Freddie Mercury. I think that was, was that the early 90s? Uh, and David Bowie, it was a, a, a function, there was a, a concert in Membley Stadium with Queen and, and David Bowie, lots of artists. And David Bowie did his thing. And, and then as he, he was just coming to an end of his set, he said he wanted to say something, to do something for Freddie and also for a friend of his who was dying of AIDS. And he, he, he fell to his knees and he said, Our Father. It was the most stunning thing. Now, it's a very yeah. explicit, explicit statement of religiosity, shall we say. But actually, you can see that impulse, you can feel that impulse in the music of David Bowie right through from, say, certainly from the late 70s onwards, where he, he suddenly began to change. He became to grow, he grew up. Lots of his music before that is great as well. But that there was a, a maturity about Bowie that, that I think makes him one of the great artists of our era, of our age, because he understood these fundamental things and also understood that to some extent he had to keep them most of the time private, secret almost. Yeah. Uh, so that was a moment of, you know, him, and you can see it in his demeanor, that he's nervous and he's aware of what he's doing. He's aware of the enormity of it. And, you know, the, he, he, there's, a, there's a moment when, when he's doing it where there's a kind of almost a hissing starts in the crowd or a, a kind of a backlash. And what he does, instead of getting louder, he goes softer. Because, of course, he's such, he was such an amazing vocalist. Yeah. He goes softer and he kills it right there by going softer. And, and you can see that, that this is his intention to, to sustain this and make this statement and then walk away, which he then does. He just gets up and he walks away. And, and it's astonishing. But that's in the music also. And that's what I set out to do with the exhibition, really, to, to talk about this possibility that in a strange and most absolutely unexpected way that rock and roll had managed, because rock and roll started with the, the cries of the slaves and the plant across the plantations, you know, it's the music that's fundamentally based in human yearning, you know, the cries of the slaves to one another across the line, you know, answer, call and response, these turning into chants, these turning into songs, these turning into the blues, you know, that, that, this is a really the cry of the human heart. This is the fundamental, you know, the first cry of the first baby, you know, moving through history uh, to to eventually reach these these particular, the, you know, to these these 
these heights of whatever you like, whatever you, whether it's Dylan or Bowie or or whatever. But you know that what's going on now is really, in a certain sense, quite reductive because you know your people now doing analysis of the Beatles. There may be something in this, by the way. I don't know. But they say that, you know, for example, the Beatles didn't write their songs in the early days, that there was people writing them and so on, uh, teams of people writing them, and they couldn't have done it while they were singing and the, doing nightly gigs in Hamburg. All of this kind of stuff is starting to creep in now. And it's quite dis disconcerting for people like certainly like me, who kind of grown up on the assumption that this, this music is an organic reflection of the culture and an emanation of the culture. <laughs> But I think that aspect of it is is something that, uh, you know, and I, I got an enormous response to that uh, uh, exhibition. Yeah. And, and for, for to, to unexpected parts, like, but it wasn't necessarily, you know, to any kind of holy moly aspect of it. It was like, uh, you know, that people understood that when I described the song that really alerted me, first of all, to this possibility or that may awakened me as a teenager to the to something in myself that was desiring at a level that was beyond the normative it was a, a song called uh, Ride a White Swan by Mark Boland by T over T-Rex. And I did an essay about that song, which is part of the exhibition. And people actually thought, you know, each person who read it applied their own song to, to it and, and was able to kind of in, translate that essay into their own experience, into the song that had moved them in order to pursue this interest in this music. So, you know, I mean, it, it's, you see, the problem is that the paraphernalia and the surrounding culture of rock and roll, the, the excess and the hedonism and the narcissism and all that creates a misdirection, which denies the presence of the heart of the artist and the heart of the listener being yeah. brought together in this intimacy. Yeah, and I remember, I mean, in the, the piece you wrote after Amy Winehouse died, I mean, you talk about again, how a lot of the popular music we listen to is rooted in the spirituals of the slaves, gospel music. So there is this, this religious dimension. Um, and I, I don't know, like before I had my own kind of religious awakening, I remember listening to a lot of soul music, a lot of R&B as a teenager. And I always was captivated by the way that they're able to capture suffering, the desire for love, the desire for hope. Um, especially people who are, you know, descendants of the slave trade, like it's kind of in their bones. So, but even, even for people who don't have that, that heritage, like there's something universal about this human longing that the singers are able to convey that like really provoked me to ask, like, you know, what, what is behind this? Like, what are they ultimately seeking? Because this is something, this is something I desire too, even though it's mysterious. And I, I at that point in my life, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. Like it really got deep into me and made me want to, to seek what they were singing for. And yeah. that's why you say like there's a prophetic dimension to the vocation of the singer of the the musician, and especially like like what you said about Winehouse and others like her. I mean, she she seemed to be so aware of this prophetic dimension, this need to like to bring awareness to the drama of the human condition. But the the conditions of the industry kind of um, you describe it as like um, a star's internally combusting. You know, like this uh, all the pressure that they put um for you to become this like this packaged commodity to have to conform to the, the standards of marketing and you know the commercial kind of ideal someone like Winehouse who's so aware of the prophetic vocation like she was crushed under that you know like she couldn't put on this front she couldn't be fake and like even even when they had her do publicity interviews she was very frank like she if she didn't feel like being interviewed she would give them an attitude like she she never put on this this performance that the the record label wanted her to and you see what the consequences, like a lot of these artists suffer, a lot of them either kill themselves, are killed, whether because of addiction or whatever. Um, so when you, going back to what you're saying about the conspiracies, I mean, is it all a bunch of Satan is trying to bring, you know, 
conspiring to spread their agenda in the world. I don't know. I'm probably never will, but there's definitely something dark about what's going on in the industry in the sense that they kind of suffocate these artists and again, their, their spiritual prophetic uh, mission, their vocation, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I used to say, I, I mean, I think one of the things I recall from that, that, that essay I wrote about Amy Winehouse was the idea that, you know, the headlines were saying, you know, Winehouse, you know, dies of an overdose or whatever. And, and, and they said that, that really, if this, this headline had been truthful, it would have said, you know, you know, that Amy Winehouse died failing to, to find the, the cause of her desiring, mm. you know, that she had failed to, to find this in the world. And, and, and I think that's, you see, there's, a, there's an extraordinary fragility about the artist in this particular incarnation, the musician, the singer of all the, of all the art forms. You know, the singer is the most volatile and the most fragile uh, because they are like, as I, I say in that essay, I think, you know, like a filament in a bulb, so flimsy and yet carrying this high octane, this current, this charge that is capable of melting everything all around them and, and, and conveying this through all of the, the noise and the babble of, of, of the rock and roll industry and of the world to be heard, this voice to be heard so that you pass it, you know, passing by the door of a, of a, of a cafe or a club or something, you hear this voice and it, it's mesmerizing because why? Because it is the cry of, of the baby developed to another level the first cry of the baby, it is the cry of the slave. It is translated into a, into an idiom that is somehow coherent emotionally, although not necessarily intellectually. And, and this is a, a tremendous gift, that it, but that it places the person, the artist, in a very delicate position, in a very dangerous position all the time, that they're on the, tri tri on the emotional and the psychological tightrope, high above the audience all the time, in danger of falling. And then some of them fall and they, you know, there seems to be this extraordinary thing, which we went into in the exhibition about this, the 27 Club, you know, which is so many artists had had just at this precise age of 30, 27, had died in all kinds of ways, usually from their own hand or by an overdose or whatever. And, and, and it seemed to me that this was like some kind of gateway yeah. moment that they either made it or they didn't. And Amy Winehouse didn't make it. She didn't get through. Whereas if you get to the other side of that, Gates, you seem you can go on then for forever, you know, like Dylan or Leonard Cohen or whatever, you know, that you can just that you find the code that allows you to somehow, you know, carry this current with you, and 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 hold it in your body and hold it in your voice, and 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 give gift it to the world, but without killing yourself, without it killing you, and I I think that that that's kind of what I I I felt about Amy Winehouse more than anything, you know, that you know she was there was something unearthly about her. To, that voice was so extraordinary and, and you know, her, her personality was so the whole, the coherence of all of that. And yet you felt, you know, this is, this is dangerous. Also, you know, you felt this is fragile. This is, this is so delicate that it's, it, it, it can, you know, you touch it, it'll, it'll, it'll disintegrate. And, and that's what happened. And, you know, I've seen that again, obviously lots of other artists happen, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, this is one of the great crimes in a way, you know, of the journalistic profession is their the reductionism, which they've applied to the whole art of, of music in this context. And this this idea that it is just noise, it's a background to hedonism, you know, uh, you know, that it's just like, you know, it's, you know, you know, they cost this, they, they have all these phrase, you know, uh, rocker, you know, they call it is rocker, you know, rocker Bono or, you know, uh, you know, rocker boy, you know, uh, like it's just so reductive and and stupid and and I and, you know I know why so many artists are just so fed up with all that stuff uh, 
they yeah. just don't want to know about it you know uh, so so it's interesting because you know i mean again it's that this is this is stuff of the highest level of 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 inter of engagement of the human heart and soul and and that stuff isn't really permitted to be discussed in the public realm and so it's kind of under the radar all the time but it's nevertheless real and and that's kind of what i've been so fascinated in 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 trying to un uncover in this area that that it's something big is going on something something that can't get go on in other places and that you know many ways you know parents should really become more alert to this in their children that when they're seeking out a new you know out of music is is really something that can enrich them beyond anything without you understanding it you know just trust it trust their instinct trust their desire because what they're looking for is what what they were given that's what the heart was it's the machinery of the heart that they were born with that's what they're yeah. seeking to find correspondence for yeah and it, i mean at first it's interesting what you're saying about artists having to make it through this gateway um because you see like especially the ones who are extremely talented or naturally gifted um there's so much at stake and a lot of them um again like start to collapse under the pressure of the industry and don't make it out alive you know so if we think of the 27 club but you also see a lot of these artists who you know seem larger than life like michael jackson whitney houston who who die in a tragic way um and it, again it makes this question like is the industry really um conducive to allowing these artists to to live out you know the fullness of what they can be and you know if not how do, how do they find how do these artists find their way around it and and then I mean the other thing though what you're saying about the listener, um, you see like you see a lot of parents who kind of in this moralistic sense try to censor the the music that their kids listen to rather than really educating them to listen closely and understand like okay, what what am I hearing here like what draws me to this music what is it pointing me to, um, and without that like real education that education of the heart really to understand what's in the music, mm -hmm. um, at least for me like. I, I saw when I was younger how easy it was to get caught up in the cult of celebrity and like you said, the hedonism of it, which is, I don't think that's the essence. It's, it is a distraction that comes along with it. Um, yeah. You know, and you, and you see in the cult of celebrity, again, there's this kind of like sacrificial kind of, uh, these sacrificial motifs that like you, you idolize this figure and then eventually they fall off. They have a breakdown. They yeah. have, their, you know, their sacrifice for the sake of the success of the, the owners of the record company. But I don't know, again, it's like, it circles back to what Pope Benedict says. Like you can see how music can lead you to something very dark. It can lead you to, to getting caught up in things which are a distraction, which aren't fulfilling. But at the same time, like someone who's mature, someone who has educated to listen the right way can discover the ultimate truth, can discover God through popular music. Well, it, you know, that's really so. And and, and, and you know, that reminds me of something that that was that really triggered me into this area in the first place, because, you know, I started off as being a rock music journalist. You know, I wanted to write about music. But, I, you know, I look back now and I realize I didn't know what I wanted to write about it. You know, what what do you write about music like what like music is music? What do you actually write about it? This is the mystery like as to. You know, now I know there are some there are some fantastic writers about music, but what is it that they have? What are they doing? And and because I, I didn't know really in the beginning, I just wanted to do it. And so you go to a concert and you like, well, what happened? You know, what was the band came on and there was they were this and then they did this song and it whatever you know. And well, what do you say about a song? You know, I mean, the song is the song. It doesn't need you to say anything about it. You know. So what does it add? What is added? And I, where the, the I can remember the moment then when I realized what I was doing wrong and 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 how, what the method was. It was in, in, in uh, I was reading a book by uh, Grail Marcus, a great American uh, 
music critic uh, called Mystery Train about Elvis Presley again, you know, Elvis or Jesus. So, yeah, and he was describing going along that he was skeptical about Elvis and particularly in the Las Vegas period. And but he went along one night to a concert in Las Vegas and he was sitting in the front row and he said, you know, at, when at the end Elvis was always young and he with this song, uh, uh, I can't help falling in love with you and 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 I can't have can't help falling in love and and he Marcus said wrote this extraordinary sentence about Elvis singing this song which kind of just arrested me there on the spot the sentence was that in the way he sang this song Marcus said that he could see that Elvis had a capacity for affection that was all but superhuman a capacity for affection that was all but superhuman and I remember thinking is that what it is? Is that what it is? Is that what he's doing? Wow. He's not just singing. He's not, he's not performing. He's not an entertainer. He's conveying his affection for the world in these songs. And then I looked again at Elvis and I said, that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Now, that's the way to write about rock and roll. That's what you that's what you write about the song. That's what you write about the singer. Something like that. Now, I don't think I can't think of an equivalent sentence that would be as good as or better than that right now. But that's what you have to try to do to describe this process. Yeah. And that's again the, the, the way of describing this infinite desiring at work in, in, in the performer and in the audience. That there is something going on that is not spoken about, that is not it's not explicit. But that this is really that you have to go to this level of comprehension in order to see what it is. But that being said, are there any artists out there right now who you think are at that level of greatness or who have that kind of prophetic dimension within their their artistry? Oh, I, I, I'd have to say maybe it's my age, but I would have to kind of mention the kind of older uh, old stagers. You know, I, I, I mean, obviously, I'd talk about Dylan. Still, I mean, Dylan is still capable of writing extraordinary songs. I mean, he doesn't write anything like the number of extraordinary songs he wrote in the 60s. But he, you think like he's not an artist who's over, you know, he's not he's not like living off old glories because once in a blue moon, he will write an incredible song that is as good as anything he ever did. I remember one that jumped out at me. Uh, I think it was called uh, The Long and Wasted Years. I think it was from an album about uh, maybe the one about the Titanic album. I think that was the, um, whatever that was called. Um, uh, with the long Titanic song on that was on that album as well. But the long and wasted years is about a couple living together who have whose love has exhausted itself many years before, but they're still together, and it's the most poignant and extraordinary song. Uh, like you know, that's that flash of genius, you know, is is in Dylan. But uh, I I don't know. I mean, I I I I really admire people like Morrissey, uh, Van Morrison. Uh, but they're all guys, they're all old guys like myself, you know. Uh, I I can't say that there's any artists in the last twenty years that have I've kind of. I don't think pricked up my ears. Nick Cave, but again, he's been around forever as well, you know. Like, but he seems to keep regenerating himself, and almost like he every time he seems to be a new artist every second year, you know. He just seems to reinvent himself completely in a way that's completely plausible and isn't doesn't seem to be in the slightest bit effective. Uh, yeah. Th so, yeah, those are the guys that interest me. But uh, uh, I can't say off the top. Of my, I, I actually don't think there's anybody. I, 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 you know, I think the 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 artists that really move me, you know, they're 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 in their 70s or certainly in their 60s by now, you know. Yeah. What about well, you? Do you? We can only you, hope. We can only hope that there will be do, one. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Me, I mean, I think the last was Winehouse. Um, 
but this is the thing like a lot of the younger people who have that potential have kind of burned out or you know imploded as you as you said like i think Laura hill had the potential and she kind of collapsed under the, the pressure of the industry but she yeah like she she's up there um yeah i think it has to, to do with the times doesn't it uh yeah. Stephen? Yeah. But, you know, the music came, that music all came all together out of a really strong appetite for a desire and for a change, a new way of being in the world, rightly or wrongly. We, let's not get into that. But, you know, it, of course, in some ways it went into excess and so on. But it, the impulse, the desiring was an expression of the desire for freedom, yeah. you know, from the, in the 60s. And, and the music just came out of people as though just it just burst out like a fountain out of a multiplicity of artists. And and uh, those moments have never recurred. I mean, we had the, the punk moment in, in in 77, which was a little bit analogous, but in a negative way. It was almost like a negative image of the 60s, you know, and, and, and that had its own energy, but it was a somewhat dark energy and yet a funny, you know, quite a humorous black humor energy, you know, and, you know, because I think of bands like the Ramones, like which, which were, you know, such so, so reductive in their own kind of commentary on the music and yet so explosive. Yeah. Know? But I have to say, I mean, looking at the music when I was growing up versus now, and again, like most of the music that I grew up with was like soul music, R&B. Um, I notice in retrospect, a lot of the music, even like the more popular commercial hits that were coming out, there was, um, there is a lot of heart behind it. Like people would put their hearts on their sleeves. There was a real joie de vivre, as they say. Like there was, um, there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of excitement. People felt, yeah. um, like these songs, like there is the soul was embodied in it. And now there's this this kind of blase detachment, you know, there's this uh kind of as they say, people are irony pill, they swallow this irony pill and they don't they don't really care anymore. You know, someone broke my heart, forget about them, nothing really matters anyway. Like I see that again, like even in the soul music, which is supposed to be coming from the soul, like it's people, these soul singers are singing like they're detached from their souls now. And even like even in like the, the hip hop, like the hip hop back in the day. Again, like people were, it was rough. It was intense. Like people put their whole selves into it. Whereas now they have this this trend called mumble rap, where the rappers are just they're kind of mumbling their way through the song. They're probably high on some drug, but they're they don't. The point is they don't care. So like I'm seeing a lot of this apathetic nihilism in the yeah. Music, and it's in the past like it, it was cool. It was exciting to put your heart into it and to be yeah. passionate. You know, yeah, it was there was innocence about it, and 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 now there is this sense of knowingness, you know, jadedness that yeah. you know we are simply, and this I think you get this in other mediums as well. You get it in painting, you get it in poetry, you get it in novels, where there's almost like a pastiche element to everything, you know, that it's like a kind of an ironic commentary on on something that went before, as opposed to being an original blurt of 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 you know that that desiring that that the human. Uh, uh, was kind of born to 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 emit and and uh, you, so you get this all the time whereas this sense of like uh, parody and and imitation and replication and retro uh, and and it doesn't seem to be sincere in fact sincerity is kind of like almost out of bounds and and you know you only you have to look if you look at videos of old bands like from the 60s like you just see this the difference like like the, the attitude is just clear that these people are real on stage they're like they're not as it were posing they're they're like just so happy to be there. They're just so unbelieving, incredulous to be there. And they want to say what they want to say. And now it's just, whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, whatever. Mm, the other factor is that now 
to become a star, it's not a question of your talent or skill. Like it's a question of can we build hype around your persona? Like it's, mm. it's you're selling a persona more so than music itself. So that's why you kind of see this disengagement from the music. It's you know how do we sell this, the idea, the concept of this this artist? And then mm. that's where you see like these these fandoms. You know people who identify with a particular artist again, even if they're not that talented anyway. Um, it's it's a yeah it becomes an identity marker that you you follow this singer. Um, so no, you, you see how like the, a lot of these factors, the commercialization really does change the nature of the music itself and listeners' relationship to it. You know? Yeah, I think that's right. I think the, the whole machine thing, uh, and that, that's what, of course, what grinds down the, the artists even more, you know, because they're being pushed in certain directions and they're being censored and they're being restricted and so on. And, and, and uh, they're not able to be themselves and they're not being creatively free to, you know, there's this pressure to replicate success, mm -hmm. so, you know, you know, I, I always find this about, you know, these kind of people in these middlemen, you know, whether it's in publishing or in marketing or in, you know, recording industry, whatever, they, they're really, really good at telling you what was successful last year and telling you that's what you should do this year. They can't tell you what's going, what, you know, and then, of course, if you do actually come up with something that's original, they, they kind of take the credit for it, you know, like it's, 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 it's very frustrating to see that because that was one, I think the thing about the sixties was that there was a kind of like, you know, somebody, I don't know who it was saying recently that the, the thing about the sixties was that the guys running the record companies just didn't know because they were all old guys. Mm -hmm. And just, when an artist came in, they just said, you know, okay, just do it. Just make the record. Let's see, let's, let's put it out and see what happens. But then the next generation of in our guys were younger guys who were hip to the groove and they thought they knew everything. And so the next thing they started to control and dictate what the music could be. So they blocked, they they, they functioned as a genuine middlemen blocking gatekeepers on the, the creativity of the artists. I forget who it was, a very good point I saw recently. Some artists were saying that. Uh, uh, it might come back to me before we finish, but it, it, it's, it's, I think that's kind of one of the things that happened, you know, that, you know, you just need to trust if somebody's got an energy and a desire to 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 communicate something and they have that magic thing because you can hear it in an artist like in in three or four notes of vocal or of guitar intro you know you can hear this is something different this is something different and you know you know that at a resting sense of you know you hear it on a public address system and it's like you know two bars and you're you're caught and what's that what's that what's that and then you spend like you used to spend three years three months trying to hear it again or what was that about it was you know something about a shoe you know what it was it please please tell you know a song about a shoe you know like and and uh, of course now you can just kind of repeat one or two words into google or something and it tells you what the song was and where the artist was born and you know what age and you know, who he's married to and whatever you know yeah absolutely mm. yeah so i mean I, I wanted to quickly switch gears moving a little bit away from the popular culture into the politics because one of the one of the things you touched on in your book lapsed agnostic which is for me, one of the most powerful ones, um, in addition to things about popular culture, is um, the the political situation in Ireland. And you had some some really fascinating, kind of surprising takes about the the reality of colonialism. And it struck me because usually you see that um, colonialism is a pet issue of of progressives, so called liberals, and those who may not identify with those uh, political causes tend to to downplay the the extent to which colonialism is problematic, but also the um, the psychological and the spiritual effects that it has on, on a people, on a nation. And I think like what usually happens within, uh, maybe we could say the Marxist or the post-structuralist critique of colonialism is that 
it's a it's an unjust unjust power dynamic it's about you know it's take it's uh one one entity who's more powerful taking power away from from a weaker entity this again this hegelian dialectic um but the way you were coming at it it was it was a matter of injustice but it's about like taking away the freedom of a people to to take up a call to take up a responsibility to to fulfill their their calling as a nation as a you know as a community we could say and you know like it touching on kind of ideals like subsidiarity solidarity um and you know and you mentioned Franz Fanon who you know has a very particular view of it that I don't know but you do you have a lot of overlap with his critique so I don't know I'm, I'm curious to hear more about how you've developed that critique of colonialism especially as it applies to the, the situation in Ireland yeah well you see Ireland was, you know, they, they say Ireland was never colonized by Britain, um, which technically is true. You know, you know, they just said we were part of the British Empire, but we weren't. We were a separate island and they were using us as a breadbasket. And, and we didn't really have any say in whether who we belonged to or what our identity was to be. And, and anyway, you know, colonialism is a psychological uh, process, first and foremost. You know, it's like uh, Fanon said about, you know, that there's a really clear sentence where he says that the first thing that the colonizer does on arrival in a new territory is impress upon the consciousness of the native that before the advent of colonialism there was nothing but savagery or I think barbarism is the word he used barbarism so in other words then the people need to adjust themselves to be like the master like the colonizer and that's the fundamental impulse of colonialism now I, I you know when I read Fanon uh, the wretched of the earth and and black skin, white mass. I said, these books are about Ireland and all but the color of the skin, because they're about the Irish experience of, of subjugation, of, you know, the position of self-hatred, of mimicry, all of these pathologies that go with the, the post-colonial condition. And I, I find it really interesting now because, you know, I, I run into trouble quite frequently now or find myself in disagreement with people on, who are on the same side of lots of arguments in other respects, you know, uh, that that they say, oh, you're, you're aligning yourself with that left-wing kind of uh, critical race theory, uh, kind of post-culture Marxist view of the world. And I say, no, I'm not. I'm just acknowledging what actually happened, you know, just because, you know, it's inconvenient uh, because a certain faction have adopted a particular critique and taken certain elements of uh, truthful witnessing through history as part of their panoply of instruments doesn't mean that we have to then abandon that and say, you know, well, no, we don't do it. Like, it's a bit like, you know, in, in the context of Marxism in a slightly narrower sense, you know, people kind of expect you to repudiate everything to do with Marx if you want to take a certain line on things. But I mean, I, I kind of, and you know, there are lots of, there's lots to repudiate in Marx, but there's also lots to actually say, well, actually he got that right. You know, I mean, his concept of the, the ownership of the means of production is a vital concept, you know, which very particularly so now in the present age of uh, technology and coming age of AI. It's a very pressing issue, which we have allowed to become, you know, fallen to fall away by virtue of our kind of almost nervousness about talking about Marx or, you know, even allowing ourselves to be seen or to be, you know, taken for a, a crypto Marxist. So the thing about this whole thing, Fanon thing was, you know, you know, like colonialism happened and and it was bad for many people and now the, the core argument i get into this and i've had this discussion and you know in with people um like stefan molino is a very good uh, philosopher blogger uh, uh, from canada and he talks about this and he takes a very kind of purist line that it's very clear that you know the west britain uh, spain portugal uh, these countries offered civilization 
to the third world, to other countries. And, you know, that this was a great gift. Okay, there was some bad stuff that happened, but, you know, overall it was a good deal and they became modern. But I say, well, okay, but what's modern and, and, and what's civilization? And, and, you know, can can we choose our own way of becoming civilized? Is that possible? Is that permitted? Do we have to be beaten into particular forms of civilization? Is that not itself a paradox, uh, if not an oxymoron? Uh, and, uh, you know, this this so, you know, you may well decide objectively that Western civilization, as it was presented, you know, in, in these situations, was the most advanced civilization of its time or perhaps of any time. And you're not entirely sure what criteria you would apply for that. But, you know, in general, you would look at the overall picture and say in material terms, that would be true. But perhaps there are the countries that are inflicted with these kind of gifts are losing other things as a consequence. Certainly in, in Ireland, in the case of Ireland, we lost our language, which I think was a great, you know, a, a mortal wound to our nation and has been at the heart of, of so much of our misfortune ever since. You know, uh, we lost, you know, we almost lost our, our uh, faith. I mean, the, 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 the penal laws, which, uh, which came to bear on England and Ireland, on Britain and Ireland, uh, had an hugely traumatic effect on uh, on Ireland. And uh, I, I, I think I wrote an article in, in First Things a, a few years ago about this and, and, and about Fanon and, and, and just, you know, I think, you know, what would Fanon have said to these people? He said, well, you know, okay, you, you civilization, but it's not ours. Yeah. And that's the end of it. Mm. We don't want it. Is it okay if we don't want it? You know? And I think it, it must be okay. It must be okay if people say no. Because who is to say objectively that this civilization, just because it is, makes people more prosperous, is mm. a better civilization? You know, who is to say that prosperity and happiness are some offer some kind of equivalence? Because they don't. We know this from the Easterland paradox that, you know, up to a certain point, you know, there is a correlation between money and happiness. Uh, it takes say, X amounts of money to get you Y amount of happiness. But then after that, to get to Y costs you like 10 times as much money. And so therefore, there's not a, a clear correlation between the two phenomena. And yet our mythology of our culture assumes that there is. You know, you just look at the materialist societies we've generated now where people are running raw every day, parents trying to keep the, the roof over their heads while they're dumping their children on, in creches at seven o'clock in the morning and going rushing to collect them at, at 6.30 in the evening. Um, you know, like, is this civilization? Like, really? Like, can we discuss these things? So that's kind of uh, approximately the, the area in which I see a lot of this discussion having kind of gone off the rails, you know, that it's like as if it's quite evident that, you know, you know, people say, well, you know, you guys in in Ireland, like you wouldn't have any proper buildings if 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 the British hadn't come. And I said, well, we would have, but they would have been our buildings. Yeah, you know? yeah, no. And I mean, I think first, what's most interesting to me is to to understand the psychological effects that colonization has, because I don't know. I mean, clearly, every every situation, every circumstance of colonization is different. Um, but I've seen it. I've seen like especially in friendships, working with people who are from historically colonized countries, you see that um, they're still grappling with the uh, the after effect of their agency being robbed of them, the sense that they, they have the freedom to take responsibility for themselves, take ownership of their lives, their cultures. And there are all kinds of ways that they try to compensate, you know, that until that wound is resolved in personally, but also collectively, like it can, it leads to a lot more trauma and, and destructiveness. So it's, 
you know, like you said, like we have to be realistic about the actual effects that it has on people. But again, from a, a more a moral or philosophical point of view, I mean, again, it's to for an outsider to come in and to to feed the people this narrative that your culture is inferior, ours is better, and we're just going to uproot everything and impose this externally onto you. Um, like, needless to say, that's damaging because. I don't know. And like what concerns me is like I see a lot of people, again, from a more conservative classicist or traditional bent saying, well, oh, well, certain civil civilizations are barbaric. They are inferior. So Western nations needed to come and bring in their civilization, their their morals, their religion. And I don't know, I especially see that a lot because I, I studied Spanish literature. So we covered a lot of Latin American history. And you see people who say, yeah, I mean, if Columbus didn't come, like Latin America wouldn't be Christian and they'd still be doing blood sacrifices, human sacrifices. And I mean, that's such a facile argument because, I mean, first of all, there are plenty of pagan Western nations, European nations that were doing equally grotesque sacrifices, inhumane things. But also, I mean, from a, a, a true like Christian perspective, it ignores the fact that like there is this inherent dignity within the people and that there is something redeemable about every culture and that the true missionary work, the true work of evangelization is not to uproot a people from their culture, not to erase everything, but to look within their culture and say, okay, like where are their hints of truth here? Like where is Christ already at work in this culture and try to cultivate that. And I mean, the, the question that I have that I've been really thinking about is like, especially considering you know, Catholic European nations going to uh, other countries around the world. Um, I don't know, like you see that the missionaries often depended on the, the economic resources of the imperial crown. Um, and that was, I mean, that was the economic reality of the time. But you also see how these missionaries compromise themselves because they weren't only bring, going to bring the faith, like they're going to bring, again, this imperialist colonizing uh, mentality that, needless to say, was extremely destructive on these cultures. So. I don't know. It's anachronistic to to condemn the the missionaries for choosing to collaborate with the the crown, but I don't know. I mean, what do you make from at least from like the perspective? Well, uh, yeah, this has been an aspect of the thing that has always troubled me, you know, because yeah. well, for which are reasons I'll come back to. But you know, clearly, you know, yes, there's a real problem here, you know, because really what's happening is, you know, the, you know, these countries didn't go to Africa or to Ireland or wherever to to bring civilization. They they went to plunder. They went to plunder, right? And the missionaries who accompanied them, you know, did provide a gracing aspect uh, for that plunder. That that has to be conceded. You know, I mean, Ireland never had a historical kind of history of imperialism, colonialism, in, you know, as an aggressor, but it did actually bring many many missionaries, uh, provide many missionaries for these uh, escapades in in other places, in Africa in particular. And and that that's a, you know a little somewhat open wound, in my view. You know, I I, I think it it needs to be talked about. Uh, you know, I think in some respects, you know, the, the, there's an essay I wrote in interesting too about it. it was a the American or the Australian writer uh, Peter Carey in one of his books, I mean, his most recent book, I think. And I, I'm sorry that I can't remember the title of it right now, but it's about uh, uh, Australia and it's about their Aboriginal experience. And and there's a very telling scene in the, the book where a quite complicated scene but there's there's a discussion between uh, an old australian man and a young and a woman who they're discussing you know she has found a, the skeleton of a, an aboriginal child in, in alongside the roadside uh, in ancient uh, which has come somehow uh, a skeleton and she she takes it to this man and and they're discussing the general situation of uh, the, the colonial period or the the the, the entire history in, in of the the aborigines and the uh, white people as it were 
and and she then as an afterthought says well shall i shall i take till i take the child with me and uh, or the skeleton with me and you know he says well whatever you want and you know and she says well you know i want to do the right thing and he, he then says there is no right thing you see this is the problem with the present moment that everybody's trying to kind of rectify things that are not rectifiable you can't reach back into history and write everything and by the same token if you then carry the grievances of that history forward uh, this is not something that i want to do i think this assumption is always made when you even want to discuss these matters that you are trying to dig up the past and parade your grievances and start tearing down statues that doesn't follow at all the important aspect of this is that we discuss it so that we have a truthful memory of what happened. The point is you can't rectify the past, certainly not by creating new horrors in the present, as though to balance, counterbalance those. And that's essentially what's happening now. Uh, now, that may well seem to be uh, you know, a self-serving argument from a pasty-faced uh, Caucasian, but the reality is that this is true. That our world, you know, we in Ireland, for example, we're in this extraordinary situation where we have a great deal more in common with people from Africa who've had a colonial experience than we have with our neighbours. And, and yet they come to Ireland and call us racist because our faces are pale. You know, uh, this is these are problems. We're importing all this critical race theory from America, even though it has no basis in our history whatsoever. Like our history is entirely other, entirely different. And... You know, the reality is about this, that, you know, we we in our cultures, you know, the, 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 the inheritance of colonialism is, is manifold. You know, I know just to go a little bit through it in, in Ireland, you know, we can see it in the modern disposition of Irish people where they are constantly seeking to apologize for any uh, any suggestion of backwardness, whether it's in religiosity or in, 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 in any kind of in traditional way of being or, you know, in nostalgia any of those kind of things are regarded as you know very suspect and it's the, the impulse is in an, always a desire to uh, you know disperse any criticism on the basis of the accusations that have been leveled against us from that moment that fanon described the first thing when the colonizer arises to impose upon the consciousness the idea that before there was nothing but savagery it is like the entire life of the nation is dedicated to disproving this implication. And, you know, that the, the solution, therefore, is mimicry. We, do, we unbecome ourselves. We imitate the colonizer, the master. We, we are terrified in his presence, in his accent, by his accent. But yet we try to speak like him yeah. and so on. And, and, and we are revolted when a member of our own race seems to revert to type in public and speak in a coarse way, you know, or a guttural way, which the Irish language is an intensely guttural language. And that's why it has become deeply uh, disapproved of in Ireland, you know, culturally, even though there's a lot of lip service paid for it, almost nobody can speak it now. It has almost died out, except in tiny little hamlets around, sprinkled around the west of Ireland. And, 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 and the similarly, the music, you know, is like, you know, much more popular in Germany uh, than it is in Ireland, you know, than our own traditional music. And this is self-hatred, you know, is, is, is a part of the post-colonial inheritance. And, and uh, you know, these, these are things that people need to own up to, because if you don't, you repeat the pathologies through history. And this is exactly what's happening to us now as we seek to become the most progressive country in the world and tell each other that we are now the wealthiest country in the world, even though the only basis for that claim is that we are the best, you know, uh, tax defrauding uh, locusts in the entire world you know this is the place if you want to dodge tax anywhere come to ireland we'll fix it for you 
you know, that's that's our USP. That's our principal uh, activity. We are a prostitute nation. You know, we have virtually zero uh, actual indigenous economy. It's all fraudulent stuff done with mirrors and smoke. So uh, uh, these are the, the legacy. This is the legacy. And I've been talking about this for, for 35 years, trying to draw attention to this. And now we're on the cusp of disintegration, even though people now still to this day describe Ireland as the richest country in the world. It's ridiculous. Like what happened? Look, I've said a million times about Ireland that this is what happened. It's like, this is the analogy I use. Our grandfather died. He left us uh, premises on the main street, a shop premises and a living space, living quarters overhead. We couldn't figure out what to do with it. We thought, what would we sell in this shop? We sat in the cafe across the street, looking at the frontage for several weeks, looking over and saying, hmm, what could we sell in the shop? And then we had the brilliant idea. Hey, why don't we just rent out the shop and live upstairs? That's Ireland now. And that's the direct consequence of that colonial experience unacknowledged in our culture and unacknowledged in our thoughts and, and in our imagination. That's the, that's the, 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 the foundational problem of all of Ireland's difficulties, which continue. Yeah, and this is what you're saying at the end of that first things piece that this, um, I don't know, we see the globalization of this homogenized elitist kind of worldview spreading all over. I mean, whether Ireland, countries in Europe, or even beyond, um, where at the end of the day, it's it's this, the Pope has used this word, of it's this ideological colonization. It's uprooting people from their own culture, their traditions, and imposing something very foreign, something not really human onto them. Um, and yet it's presented as something very humanistic, something liberating, you know, so it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very deceptive. Well, you see, I, I I had a rather forlorn hope maybe about 30 years ago. I wrote a book, um, ironically, bringing all of this together in one place. I wrote a book called Race of Angels back about 1994, which was about Ireland, but it was also about U2. U2 was the central motif in the, in, in the, in the book. And the, 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 the point of the book was really to ask the question, is it possible for an impulse, cultural impulse in a culture to survive and change modes, move through various other modes to uh, and re-erupt much later in an entirely different form. And I, uh, so I was exploring Irish culture going back to the Middle Ages and coming into the into the, this modern expression of articulacy or whatever you would call it in U2. And this was the time of the Joshua Tree and Octon Baby and their, their best albums. Um, and, uh, you know, that was at the core of that then was this core question about, you know, uh, a colonialism and, and the history of Ireland and, and whether or not we could actually uh, overcome this. And, and one of the things I was discussing was the, 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 the eminence, as I, as I anticipated, of new forms of colonialism, mainly to do with corporations, corporate colonialism, which is now a reality in, in, around the globe and very much a reality in Ireland. That's what's happened. But I, I thought, and I, this is something I, I, which was almost like the conclusion of the book, that that the memory of our experience and the learning that we had at least acquired in that experience had made us probably the most qualified country on earth to be to 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 understand to comprehend the coming era and to find a way of you know limbo dancing around it mm -hmm. and i saw you too as a major force in that but ironically you know you two have gone to the dark side frankly and and their music has gone to pot and uh Ireland has continued down this abysmal path, learning nothing, remembering nothing, um, you know, making no deductions from anything, 
And so we just blunder along from disaster to disaster into the ultimate disaster where it seems now that, you know, we are being reduced to a, a bundle of chits mm -hmm. owned by BlackRock. And one day a, a knock will come on the door and say, actually, we own your country. Could you please move out? Yeah, no, and again, we were saying this before we recorded that uh, so much of the way this is packaged is as if, as if it's something, uh, again, something liberating, something progressive that's going to, you know, bring about greater prosperity, greater peace. But again, like at the end of the day, the more power is concentrated amongst the few, then the less agency that people have. And that, and that this is ultimately what gives people dignity, the fact that they have the agency to to take to take up their responsibilities, to make something meaningful of, of their lives and their communities. Have you, Stephen, any weird sense of any potential or possible in understanding or explanation for this syndrome that I just don't want to describe? You know, you're a much younger man than I am, but, you know, I find myself, you know, completely consternated and and, and bamboozled and, and, you know, bereft to watch in the last few years this sense of what I would have called the, the liberal establishments of our countries, you know, who seem to stand for progressive ideas. I don't mean just in the kind of cliched sense of, you know, that kind of liberal agenda, but in a general sense, freedom, you know, progress, you know, moving forward and so on. That these people have just, it's like, just they've left down their weapons. Yeah. The last few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but I, I'm starting to see more and more young people catching on to what's happening and doing something about it. You know, a lot of, there are a lot of intelligent people who can see through what's going on. And I think like ultimately what's most hopeful is seeing first there's like a, an existential kind of spiritual revolution, like people seeking some kind of truth that transcends whatever negative things are happening in the political or cultural sphere. Like there has to be something ultimate that promises us that even if everything collapses, there's something worth living for. So I think that's number one. But then on the political and cultural level, like I'm seeing these movements towards localism, like towards actually building sustainable communities getting involved in local politics where actual changes can be made. Um, I think on the pragmatic level, like that's that's a hopeful thing to be seeing. Um, and of course, there are people who are aware of what's going on who jump into these ideological kind of projects, which I think are a dead end. But again, I think it's it's a matter of like, we have to be concrete. At the local level, there are things to be done. There are people who I live nearby, people who I see every day, who I can I can share life with and build something with. As much as, you know, as much as we can. But so I think, yeah, like I see things happening and I don't know if the powers that be will allow much of these things to really um, to grow, to blossom. But at least people are trying, at least people are aware, you know, yeah. so that yeah. what has been shocking for me is the idea that, you know, I come from a generation that rebelled against capitalism, against the man, you know, against power in that sense. And, and you know, the abuses of power, you know, you know, against, you know right-wing tyranny you know and so on and against you know what happened in chile and what happened in different other countries you know nicaragua and el salvador and all this you know and you two did all these songs you know you know bullet the blue sky you know about that you know yeah you know, uh, about el salvador you know and you know that, that famous line where bono says you know as 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 you know put the grief and pain of el salvador to your guitar or something like that you know and which became a bit of an in-joke among uh music heads but uh, um you know, then one day it's like 
they decided, nah, we, we, we don't really care about any of that stuff anymore. You know, which those rich guys can just have it all their own way. We don't, we're not going to do anything about that. We, we don't mind. They're so, in fact, now these guys are so rich that it's not even, we're not even going to bother talking about it. There's nothing they can do. With it. We're just going to give it to them and we're going to be part of their thing. You know, we're going to be, we, we, we'll work with those guys. You know, that's, that's kind of what, what it's come down to, hasn't it? No, I mean, that seems to be the case. Yeah. But no, but again, I think it's important to, it's important for people who have these questions, have this awareness to try to connect with people, to keep these conversations going, because it's very easy to, to feel isolated, to feel helpless. And it's not, I don't think that has to be the case. I think, yes, you have to look at, you have to search for those people. You have to go out of your way to find others who have, who are concerned about these things, but we're here, you know, and there we're limited, but there, there are things we can do. At least we can, at least we can talk, you know? So, yeah. Um, yes. So we we covered a lot of ground. We we covered a lot of topics, and so yes. I, I really appreciate you coming on, John. This was uh, this was helpful for me in a lot of ways. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, I very I enjoyed the conversation very much, and uh, you know it's been it was it was a, you know quite surprising conversation actually. I think you know that, that it, it took some odd and interesting turns, and then ended up kind of in the same place that we started. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. It did. We kind of came back around. Um, but yeah. So as I said in the beginning, if people want to follow your work, you're on Substack. Correct. John Waters on chain. Yeah, John Waters Substack dot com. Okay. Yeah. Are there any? Do you want to plug any of specifically any of your books that you think are relevant to what we discussed? I know I mentioned Labs Agnostic, but yeah, any others you want to recommend to people? Well, I mean, if people are interested in knowing kind of what's been going on, what was going on in Ireland up to like about five years ago, uh, my last book was uh, called "Give Us Back the Bad Roads." which is kind of like a letter to my father, who at that point is dead for 50, 30 years, and basically saying, look, this is what we've done to your country. You know, you know, this is what's happened. Uh, so it's good. That's kind of a primer. It's a very eccentric book in the sense that there are different layers and elements in it. It's not it's not all about politics or ideologies, but some of it is. And some of it is very personal and some of it is, you know, quirky. And it's a kind of an odd book. You know, it, it's it's that I deliberately wanted it to, to somehow to be to represent you know the essence of life in a certain sense if that doesn't sound too pretentious i mean it's it, that it, i want to replicate the, the kind of contours and the rhythms of everyday existence you know rather than just writing a book about something you know uh, i wanted the book to be something itself uh so that's the that's the, so if people are interested in ireland i think they should be because you know ireland is a very salutary kind of uh, story for for america i think and a lot of people are beginning to see this now that it's you know, of course, we're coming under the influence of America in a big way and always have been, but much more intensely and not in a good way. Uh, and all the bad stuff that's happening in America is sort of flooding out, is overflowing into into Ireland. And people should become aware of this and, and see see what's what's why things are happening the way they're happening. And and uh, so, I, I mean, you know, that that's probably my more recent book, my most recent book. There's another book going back to him before, 10 years before, which is called uh, uh, Was It For This, which is a line from a, a Yeats poem. Uh, really sort of talking about the collapse of the Irish economy and, and why that happened. And but it's much more a cultural book as well. I mean, the two books are kind of connected in, in lots of ways because, uh, you know, one is a development of the other. Uh, so that's there. You know, I have 10 books and all, but, you know, as I say, Lapse Agnostic is a book about faith and, and, and my own journey. Journey, I hate that expression, but, you know, and also I wrote a follow up book to that, which is called uh, uh, Beyond Consolation, uh, which is, again, a development of some of the ideas in that book based on the whole idea the proposition challenging the possibility is is despair a rational response to reality you know uh, kind of thing you know, the, yeah. you know it should, should we be getting more and more scared the older we become really and i you know i try to say i try to explain why i don't think this is a good way to look at reality and, and uh, i 
you know so that's that's kind of so yeah they're, the books are all different they're they're quite you know they're eclectic in, in terms of but they're yeah. they're almost all about everything is about ireland always ireland as not just about itself but as a motif for for yeah. for, for the universe and for for reality yeah no it's um yeah it's interesting starting from the particular it enables you to understand yeah that's, well that's a very interesting thing Stephen. that just occurs to me because you know that's that's an amazing thing that I've, I've i've wrestled with all my life in relation to music and always fascinated me that artists are you know for a long time american artists could write very particularized songs about particular places like nebraska the blue springsteen you know that album I, you know at that time it wouldn't have been possible for an irish artist to do that to take you know roscommon and write an album about roscommon because it would be seen as kind of hicksville or you know just completely naff and that's still a bit true but there was a couple of bands i mean there was a band called the saw doctors who kind of took that on you know and they did really get over it in a really good way you know they made both songs i mean one of their songs is, is about a road a very like an arterial road that runs through the west of ireland it's called the in 17 in 17 so they have a song called the in 17 which you know it's like route 66 irish style but they, that was impossible in ireland and that was another symptom of that post-colonial thing and it was overcome simply by a band saying look we don't care we don't care. We're just going to do this because we love this country and we're going to write songs that celebrate that love. And, you know, that's, it's that simple, really, to overcome these these pathologies. If you if you know they're there or if you sense they're there, you might. I'm not saying they would describe the pathologies in the same way as I would, but they have the same sense that there's something not right about this, that you can't write a song about a county in in Ireland in the way that you can write a, a, a song about a state in, in America. And, and that, that's, I think, a really salutary way of seeing this kind of post-colonial problem thing. Yeah, no, because it's it's the inverse of, of the colonial problem. It's rather than starting from the outside and imposing it on the particular, you start from the particular and then move again to the, to the global level. But, um, yeah, so no, so yeah. check out check out John Substack, the books he mentioned. And um, yeah, again, thank you, John, for coming on. Thank you very much, Stephen. Okay.